to episode 15 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplayer Studio, I have not one, but three enthusiastic role-playing girls. Mandy Mormid, pin-up model, EDS advocate, and Tazani in the web show I Hit It With My Axe. Kimberly Kane, award-winning adult actress, filmmaker, and photography fetishist, as well as Rokia on I Hit It With My Axe. And Izzy, an EDS advocate, YouTuber, and live streamer of not only video games, but also sessions of the gaming group made famous on... I had it with my axe. You can find Mandy online everywhere by searching Mandy Morbid on Google or your particular favourite search engine, Kimberly at canearmy.com or kkshot.tumblr.com, and Izzy by searching Apocalyptic Kitten, or one word, or Isabel Lilliam. So without further ado, hi there ladies, how's it going? Hi, we're Hello. good. <laughs> good. I, I really sweated about what the right way to introduce you there, ladies or girls or what have you, but I, I seem to have uh, got away with using ladies there, so it wasn't an attempt to be uh, patronising or anything. Um, so anyway, um, maybe if we talk about what EDS actually stands for, because um, people might be thinking erectile dysfunction syndrome or something like that. In this particular um, case, I can't imagine how that would be appropriate. To, uh, I did get into LA, and it was actually a direct result of my illness. Um, I had been mostly involved in video games my whole life as a kid, and then I got sicker and sicker and sicker, and um, started to get pretty disabled. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is what EDS stands for, is a genetic defect in various types of collagen proteins. Um, which your body needs to do almost everything. It affects your eyes, your skin, your ligaments, your cartilage, your muscles, your joints, um, your blood vessels, and your internal organs. It also can have an effect on your brain stem and your spine. And your heart. And your heart. Like all, all the major and minor organs, basically. And it can, um, it can lead to um, not being able to walk or stand very much. Um, and, and lots of you know, heart problems and, and things like that. Right, because collagen is basically the, the stuff that holds everything together, right? Like it's having the glue slowly right. come away. Yeah. Um, it is progressive. So um, both Izzy and I didn't know we were sick when we were little. <laughs> nope, we didn't find out till we were much older. I found out in December of 2010 when I was 22. So, And I just got diagnosed two months ago when I was 27. Um, but I had been sick my whole life. They just couldn't figure out what it was. Yep. And a lot of misdiagnoses are very common, things like rheumatoid arthritis or benign hypermobility, and people don't realize just how bad this illness is or um, how far it goes. And and that it can be life-threatening. I think Izzy yes. and I have both had um, incidences in the past where we just <laughs> didn't survive. Yeah. Um, so I had, I think I'm up to, I'm up to uh, two heart attacks now. I have a thing where I stop breathing. Um, and mm-hmm. my digestive system actually gets pretty, pretty messed up and stops working, and that can be life-threatening, too. Yeah, I, I guess having all of your bits and pieces working correctly is, is ideal, but uh, you say that it's progressive. What does that mean? Um, it gets worse and worse, not better. There's no medication for it, and there is... Um, they say, you know, physical therapy helps, but there are almost no physical therapists who have ever actually heard of it and know how to handle an EDS patient. Who we usually get stuck with is the sports therapists, and part of that is because we usually, generally speaking, look young and healthy and fit, which that's just the outer appearance. They have no idea what's going on in the inside. I finally had to push and fight and shove to get aqua therapy, which wound up being, oh, absolutely amazing. I, I did. I loved aqua therapy. It was a great step up in my, my, uh, my treatment. Right. So. I think that, uh, in general, role-playing probably appeals to people with various types of disabilities for, for various reasons. And is there any sort of 
magical test or any particular thing that you can self-advocate um, if you think that some of those uh, symptoms that you have suggested might perhaps apply to some listeners? Well, there's um, there's the Byton score, which mm-hmm. you can Google, and that's um, the basic nine nine point scoring test for hypermobility. Um, and it's if you can bend the fifth digit back to ninety degrees on both hands, if you can bend your wrist down to touch, or your, sorry, your thumbs down to touch your wrist forwards on either wrist, um, if you can keep your legs straight, your knees not bent, and put your palms flat on the floor, and if both your elbows and knees um, are double jointed. There's not a lot of research or funding for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's only been in the past uh, about eight years or so that it's even become really recognized uh, as an actual prevalent illness. And originally they thought that it was uh, an estimated, what, one in a quarter million people had the illness. And now they're finding out it's more like one in every 5,000 people. So it's a huge leap of finding out that people have been misdiagnosed for the past 50 years. And a lot of people who are much older are finding out that they've been misdiagnosed. And um, we're learning just now just how common and how prevalent Ehlers-Danlos is becoming and it is genetic so it's like your kid gets diagnosed now and you realize this is a problem you've had your whole life which is the situation my dad's in and my mother 50s and your mom right Mm -hmm. well that's that's a cheery start to the show but uh this important information (laughs) for uh for people to have because as you say um it sounds like it's a much more prevalent disease than they than they initially thought and with it being genetic it's and um, like you say, I, I, what's the word for progressive? Then yes. if you are suffering from any of those symptoms yourself and you have children, then um, I know that uh, when speaking with Izzy earlier on, sometimes the activities that you participate in when you're younger and don't realize you have the condition can have long-term effects for you. So finding it early in your kids might perhaps curtail their baseball career, but it may um, allow them to remain mobile for, for longer. Would that be accurate? Yeah, if, if they have yeah. growing pains... Or um, digestive problems, um, things like that, are usually early signs that they're starting to catch now. Right. Okay. Well, uh, Kim, what about you? When did you get started with role playing? I started playing in. Uh, I just started playing like a few years ago. Um, Zach and Mandy uh, would run games with friends, and they wanted me to join in and. So I did it ironically at first. <laughs> she I was kind of reluctant at first. Um, like, okay, this is hilarious. And now I <laughs> play all the time. But I'm like kind of like a um I just I just wanna hit things. You wanna hit it with your axe? I just wanna hit it with my axe. <laughs> I eat all the time. If I'm not fighting or figuring something out. I'm bored. If it's not your turn. If it's not my turn. <laughs> She's that player. She's the door kicker. Oh, is Let- that right? You don't play well with others? You want to be front and no, center? No, I you know what? I prefer to play in smaller groups so my turn comes faster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All about my turn. That's right. Enough about you. Let's let's talk about me again and what my guy's going to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So it uh, sounds like uh, most of you got started with, um, with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but... Uh, Mandy, you've been at it for longer than the two of uh, them. No, uh, Izzy, Izzy was playing since she was 11. That's right. Well, yes. I, I didn't start playing Dungeons and Dragons until a few years ago, but I did start with role-playing games um, 
not necessarily tabletop, but text-based when I was 11 years old. The thing is, everyone I knew who played D&D was the people who were, um, had, you know, carried the books and the character sheets with them everywhere they went and were kind of creepy. So I never was able to play because I didn't know anyone who kind of played a little bit more casually, more for fun. And so it wasn't until probably about four years ago that I probably started actually playing D&D itself. I started out with more of the text-based, like, um, MUDs or just flat-out text role-playing games. Sure. And it's interesting that you should uh, you should mention that because something that uh, Manny and I were speaking about um, previously is the prevalence of people with uh, uh, autism uh, from varying degree to varying degrees um, are quite interested in role-playing as well. And I think that some books, like, say, for example, Shadowrun or Rifts or something like that, where there are right. vast quantities of very specific rules, that's the sort of thing that would really appeal to that particular um, condition. Yeah, um... Zach and I actually, Zach did a blog post about it, and we had this amazing long conversation with a lot of people who who are in the community and, and read, you know, a lot of the old school blogs, and we're like, absolutely, like, oh, you're right about that. There are a lot of people with Asperger's and high-functioning autism involved in role-playing because, because it... It, it uh, gives a sense of control. Yeah, and, that you know, it's... it's well, I noticed because I worked with, with kids with autism, too, um... And they're really into fantasy, and they yeah. love to pretend, and they can memorize so much information. <laughs> and I think D&D is really like, it really appeals to that kind of, of brain type because there's a lot of information. There are so many little rules that you can just fill your brain up with and remember and like pick apart on your own, and then there's the escape and fantasy element to it. And, and I think for some reason that... And it's very literary. Um, a lot of Asperger's and, and high-functioning autism are hyper, have hyper-literacy. They call it, they start reading early, and they read and read and like read me. so much. <laughs> that, too. Um, and, um, and so just, just the text of it, the books and everything, that's really appealing. Right. Do you think, then, that I've mentioned on previous shows that role-playing games really follow a, fall on a spectrum, um, and it begins at the Dungeons & Dragons, well, maybe not even Dungeons & Dragons, more, say, like Twilight 2000 or um, even, like, Rollmaster or something like that, where there are lots of very, very specific rules, and the purpose of those very specific rules is to create a simulation of what's going on as accurately right. as possible. I think that, that really does appeal to, to people with high-spectrum autism disorders. So does does that does it follow, then, that um, that those type of people would then not be interested in the, in the narrative games end of it, like, say, your fiasco or your theatrics? I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm into, like, a, a rules-like kind of D&D, but I'm certainly not into, like, a theater or story gaming kind of setting. That, that frustrates me and makes me feel um, put on the spot. Right. What is, is that to do with the acting part of it or more to do with the fact that, that um, because in, in my job I, I deal sometimes with people with high-functioning Auspergers, um, and that having very specific rules must be very um, comforting um, in a way because you know you can say, you know exactly what's going to happen. If you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, you can control everything about your character's life um, well, I think, I think in role-playing games you can't control everything in your character's life because the dice add a random element. Mm. But I think that that's because it's mathematical and it's numbers, they can understand that random element. Sure. But, yeah, I think they, they like routine and they like schedules and they like a sort of understandable um, sort of construct to reality. So, it yeah. 
What were you talking about with the acting? I'm sorry. Uh, in the um, the at the sort of uh, story game end of the of the spectrum, where it's more narrative, where mm-hmm. it's really you know what feels right for the story. It's, it's really is collaborative storytelling, and the dice play uh, less of a role in it than perhaps say at this at the uh, simulation end of the of the spectrum. Then would that be less appealing? Um, because there aren't those, you know, large volumes of, of rules and very specific ways to determine in advance, even with a random element, what what could possibly happen. I don't think it would be less appealing. Um, a lot of the role play that I did when I was younger was more based on story than anything. Uh, we did occasionally use dice, but it was mostly for combat. Everything else was really based on, did it make sense in the context of the story? Was it reasonable? And we didn't specifically have someone controlling the story. It was a collaborative effort by multiple players, and it was more of a unison decision. Basically, you could kind of do your thing, and unless you, you would reach a point where you know you could, you could do something and people would be like, okay, that's acceptable, we'll go with it, or no, that kind of doesn't make sense in the story. And I think a lot of that had to do with, um, well, I'm autistic and I did grow up doing a lot of reading and I spent a lot of time reading fantasy books and so for me the collaborative story was almost like writing a book with uh, random elements, like things that I couldn't quite control and it felt more fluid in some ways because the thing I've noticed with D&D is, don't get me wrong, I love love, 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 love and I completely am addicted to D&D but you have to stop a lot either for roles or just to um, figure out something like uh, what's my inventory look like, how much am I carrying, um, if I level up, what are my new stats. Whereas with the storytelling role play element, you have much more fluid, continuous movement. Unless mm. you have someone that... like me trying to play who's like, I don't know what to do. Right. Well, I think it does really depend I'm, on your mentality. relies on my character sheet or my stats or anything like that at all. Like I actually really like like a sandbox kind of play, but I still... I still don't want to be responsible, like completely for the story. Right. That, that was one of the things that I had in mind when I when I wrote Victoria was that, um, and this is not a, a unique idea to me, but one of the things that I found about Dungeons and Dragons, as, as you were saying, is that you would do role play, role play, role play, role play, stop, roll a whole bunch of dice, have a fight, and then start with the role playing again. And I would, wanted to write a system where the combat part of it could be part of the role-playing story, so I tried to write the, the combat so that it would only take three or perhaps four roles to resolve, and then and then even within that, the, the game master or, or storyteller, or whatever you want to call it, would be very descriptive about what was going on in the combat, so it didn't feel like the, the role-playing um, would stop. Now, to a degree, that comes down to the, to the GM, but no matter how good a GM you are, if you've got six people in a combat and they're fighting, you know, ten goblins or whatever it might happen to be, that combat's going to take quite a bit of time and the, right. the scope for role-playing uh, vanishes. Now, some people love that, um, and I really like it when it's in the context of actually a war game, like, say, for example, Warhammer 40K or mm-hmm. Necromunda or something like that. But in a role-playing game, I, I really fall on the on the narrative end that I tried to make sure that, although... Cause I, I think it's a... It's a tricky thing to balance between the two because I get really frustrated if the DM is just telling his own story and he's narrating everything. And I'm like, I have an imagination. I can use it. I understand the setting I'm in. Let right. me think about what my, what my player thinks of this. I don't need you to give me all the details. Yeah, it's a fine line. I get line. really frustrated. Then again, I like playing Warhammer 40K in combat, but I don't want my D&D to just be combat. 
Mm. So, so well, then you would play fourth edition if that's what you wanted. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't play fourth. <laughs> no, fourth that is mostly combat. It, I, I honestly think a lot of it does have to do with um, your your own personality as well as just your mood. Because there are times where I'm kind of in the mood to just kill things, and other times I do want to help tell the story. Yeah, I think with Zach's game, we got pretty lucky because he he gives us so much opportunity to drive yes. the plot and what we're doing all on our own that it's. But I wouldn't call that story gaming necessarily. I would. Okay. I actually, that's how I consider his game. Okay. <laughs> I do. I mean, because uh, the combat is good, and there's there's enough structure. I, I mean, he's not leaving us on our own. Like, he's not just like, do whatever you want to do. Blah, blah, blah. Like, here's the world. Go have fun in it. He is giving us, you know, kind of like a skeleton structure, and then we're yeah. fleshing it out. And I like yeah, that. Uh, yeah, and it, our interaction really drives where the plot's mm-hmm. going. The, the play I do, character. and that's what I love about it. So you guys, it sounds like most of you are um, playing Dungeons & Dragons um, almost exclusively at the moment in terms of uh, like a a pencil and paper role-playing game. But but Mandy, you said you started quite a long time ago. So did you begin with Dungeons & Dragons and then move to other games? Yeah, that was the first one. Um, But we very quickly got into Call of Cthulhu and um, Kimberly played um, our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle like post-apocalyptic game with us and that was fun. Um, And I also really like sci-fi Based games like Warhammer 40k, Dark Heresy, um, things like that. Right, but you've so. come back to, to D D and D. Well, that's our weekly game is D and D, just because it's the one that people are the most familiar with, and and you know we can get everyone in our apartment doing. <laughs> um, getting people together for Hello Cthulhu is a little more complicated. Not everyone's interested in that kind of, of sure. story um, or genre, so. Yeah, in previous uh, episodes, I've floated this idea of having a uh, role-playing soulmate, just like in, in real life, you know, you might find somebody that just fits you. Um, do you think that uh, gamers have uh, a game that just, you know, just fits them perfectly? And if so, what's yours? Mm. I mean, D&D is so versatile, you can make it into whatever you want, that it's really, like, you can yes. have horror D&D, you can have problem-solving D&D, you can have combat D&D, it's, I mean, like, I, we've also played role-player, and I love that, but it's so complicated that it's really hard to get people to play. Yes. Um, but I think, yeah, like, D&D is very versatile, and that's the one we, we kind of default to, but I, like, I'm, I'm really a sci-fi girl, not a fantasy girl. For sure. <laughs> In my heart of hearts, I'm a sci-fi girl. Oh, which sci-fi Aww. in particular? Um, well, I haven't played that many RPGs because most of my friends want to play D and D. I really liked the, the like couple of games of Dark Heresy I played. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sci-fi. I mean, I'm on record as sci-fi has never quite uh, tickled my uh, tickled my role-playing funny bone. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, it sounds like you've had quite a diverse experience. Okay, so um, and you can answer this in whatever order you guys like. What's your favorite book or supplement other than Victoria, of course? Um, that uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're using currently. It may just be something you like to to look at um, that is evocative uh, in some way, or you know, you you just like for whatever well, reason I, it just feels good. I really thought the AD and D Monster Manual was fun. I thought it was funny. There were some terrible things in there, but it was funny. Um, and then other than that, really, um, Vornheim the City Kit was, of course, of course because I'm on the cover and. <laughs> I colored the map in. There you go. <laughs> um, but no, I actually find a lot of the, the modules and rule books and all that kind of dull. Right. What about you, Izzy? Do you have a, a favorite? Um, 
honestly, I'm one of those people, I don't like to play the stereotypical characters, and um, I don't have a particular theme. Like, I love fantasy, but I love sci-fi, and I love actually even, like, the present day kind of stuff. I don't really care. I, I, I probably default to fantasy more than anything else, but I, I just love to create characters, and I, I more than anything, I default probably to the monster manual, because I like to create monster classes. Like, um, the current character that I'm playing is an Alu fiend, which is a suc- the child of a succubus and a mortal creature, so I I flip through the monster manual like, okay, what can I play that's going to, you know, wreck things? That's what I do, too. I, I like to play half, like, monster characters or, or half monster characters. Right. right, I won't delve into that too deeply. Um, what about you, Kim? Just, like, uh, whatever it is that uh, lets you kill stuff? I'm really into Raymond Carver. <laughs> <laughs> She's joking. <laughs> no, I, I don't know who Raymond Carver is, but I'm guessing it's. I, I know. I'm not really into anything, really. I like. I. I don't. I'm not into it. I just like coming over here and playing D and D. Don't read the supplements. I don't even know what. It, like. Oh, you see all those books. Yeah. <laughs> and all the books under the bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Get busy, Kim. Find a favorite before the end of the interview here. <laughs> so, if, if any of no. you could uh, could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way, or it came along at a time in your life where something else bad was happening, and you've constantly you're uh, scarred by it. I'm going to offend so many people. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. Do it. Um, okay. Well, there's someone causing a fuss in one of the online forums and um i think someone there associated with made a, a really pretentious uh a really pretentious gaming game i think it's a whole separate game uh, it's supposed to be um what was it called i don't know what or who you're talking about i think Right, so there's a game. But what particularly about this game did you not like the sound of was just the way that it was described? Absolutely, it was the way it was described because it said that there was so much wrong with the way me and my friends enjoy playing and that, and that it was wrong for us to do it that way and, and socially and morally irresponsible actually was, was the underlying oh, okay. issue. So, so the issue was not so much the game as the way that somebody used it as a way to bludgeon your way of playing. Oh, absolutely. That's why they made it. Is this is a better way of playing? Oh, oh, oh I see. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay, and that's that pretty could, yeah. much what they said when they when they just de- when they described the product. Okay, you don't want to be brave and no. Okay, I can't remember the name. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I, I literally can't remember the name. Sure. Um, but I actually I really have have never heard, like listened to um, a recording of a four E game that I I appeal to me in any way at all. Um, Oy. Or sat around and like listened to my friends play bits of four games. I I really can't I can't get into that at all. It just took away everything chaotic and random and fun about it. Right. Like if I wanted to play a video game, I'd be playing a video game and enjoying it for different reasons than sure. I played D and D. Sure. Yeah, I, that's one of the common. Um, that's one of the relatively common things that people say about it is that um, you know it's pretty combat heavy and you've got your models out there and so forth and you like you're only one step removed from from wargaming, but not in a good way. Yeah. Okay, so are there any uh, supplements or games that you're really looking forward to coming out? I'm curious about 5th edition. Well, so am I, because I, I just heard about it, thanks to Zach. <laughs> 
I'm I'm actually really curious because there's so much internet speculation. It's pretty funny. Well, I'm just hoping it's not like fourth ed, and I hate it's, to you know beat a dead horse. It's not going to be like fourth ed. There, that's they're, what I'm hoping. Fourth ed didn't sell very well. Well, obviously not. I, so I did play in a like, fourth ed group, we need Mandy. To back up a little bit and figure out you know where this kind of went wrong and where we lost it's only we lost people and there was one good thing that came out of fourth ed, and that was the character creator. And it was amazing. It was really well done. It was so well done. I was so impressed with it. But I wasn't impressed with the game itself. That, but that character creator, man, I, I seriously spent days just sitting around designing characters. I have fun so designing fun. characters, too, but I, I'm uh, the, the character creator. Oh, it's so good. It really is. I did love it. Yeah, you can feel free to chip in on this, Zach. But I don't know if any of you uh, guys heard that uh, Monty Cook took his bat and his ball and he, he went home from the from the uh, D&D Next uh, design team. Yeah, we heard. I don't know who that is. Monty Cook is one of the uh, one of the godfathers of, of gaming, I suppose, oh, okay. um, to, to a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I didn't, I, there were no details. Uh, Tim Brannan, um, who's on episode 12, uh, was, uh, was, no, episode 11, sorry, was, was talking about it on his blog. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big cog to lose from that, that machine for sure, so I'm not sure what effect that's going to have overall, but I'd be really interested to know why it was that uh, why it was he decided to, uh, to leave. That's for sure. Maybe, maybe after, I mean, you know, after it comes out and everything, we'll get some gossip, but I haven't heard why either. Yeah, if anybody is listening, um, knows anything more about it and is prepared to share on a, on a confidential basis, then Daniel at hazardgaming.com. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what about you? Uh, is there anything in particular looking forward to coming out? No. Not really. I mean, to be totally honest, I'm kind of one of those people that when I latch onto a game, I latch onto it. Uh, like, I played StarCraft for 10 years. I, I tend to be very content with what I have if it if it's, you know, pleasing. And I think that's part of the reason I like 3.5 so much is because 3.0, um, I know, had some flaws and issues that they kind of worked on in 3.5. And um, most of my friends and um, play kind of a homebrew edition anyway. So, um, is I mean, I'm, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to 5th Ed now that I know about it. But at the same time, I'm not holding my breath just because 4th Ed we're is such a disappointment. We're going to keep the game playing anyway. Well, yeah. What comes out. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what you do. I mean, there are people who still play the original version anyway. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. People are going to play what they want to play. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, this is for, for all of you. Um, if you could only be a player or a GM, DM, storyteller, whatever you want to call it, which would you choose and why? Oh, player. Easy. Why? Mm-hmm. Would you? Um, I think because, uh, like, no. as fun as it would be to be a GM and, and run a game, I enjoy being um, someone who helps shape the story because I'm in it. Um, I want to be in the game because des- part of my favorite thing is designing characters. I think if I was a GM, I would spend all my time designing unique NPCs that no one really cared about, probably, um, and who would probably just die or something inevitably, and then I would be horribly sad. But I, I really love being a player, and I've actually had very little desire to ever be a GM, although it has crossed my mind a couple times. I've never really been one of those people who's like, oh, I really want to run a game. I am perfectly content to be a player. I, I do get that I really want to run a game thing, and I've done it a few times, and I'm still trying to get my um, shit together. I'd play a game so if you ran, Mandy. So I would I do can, that. So I can run, um, like, a Arabian Nights kind of setting. Um, 
a very archaic occult kind of Arabian Nights setting. But I think if I had to pick one, I'd stick with being a player. Right. I guess this question then is for um, just for Mandy, seeing as you have GM experience. When you're a GM, how do you prepare for a session? My best game, I didn't prepare at all. At all. Like, that usually helps. It, this is how I started it. I, I went to a random letter in the monster manual. And the first monster I saw that I liked is the was was how I started that session. Yeah, the, having that sort of spark of something that uh, that grabs you is a really useful place to start. I think, and although it was just randomly uh, selected, forcing yourself to to try to work with it probably created some interesting uh, solutions to how to turn that into a turn it into an interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you really have to be in the mood to to do it if you're someone like me. And, like, I've done it a couple times. The first time I prepared and I had a map and I I had, you know, ideas that I'm interested in and and I, you know, that kind of thing. And I had treasure in certain places and I did the whole thing. Um, And I didn't really have to change much when the players actually got in there. Um, But it worked out perfectly well because... They only survived by the skin of their teeth, but they did. So it was. It ended up being fairly well balanced, and I think I genuinely creeped Zach out. <laughs> um, and then the second game was the one that was completely unprepared for, and that one was way more fun, like way more fun and way more creative. And um, and then I tried to do that the next time, and I think I was tired, and it didn't really work. Mm. It's hard to, you know, bottle lightning, right? When something just works and it just it just works. And one of the good things about being a GM is, you know, when you create an NPC and it just magically comes to life and everything about it works. And, and also yeah, when you get interesting connections and in, uh, in, in stories, right? Yeah. I, I mean, that, that definitely happened. I had a couple NPCs that, I mean, they were very interactive and they were, they had voices and they had, you know, and like none of this I had thought about ever before. They had names. They, I mean, like, it was, yeah, it was weird. Like, where did that all come from? Mm. And, and authors talk about that as well, you know, uh, characters that they had just as as sort of like bit part players suddenly take over the story. And, and I think that that's probably, for me at least, where the magic of, of being a GM uh, comes in, that's for sure. So what would you say was the perfect number of people to role play? KK, you like small groups. Four. four. She says four or five. I, I don't mind larger groups, but um, anything over over eight gets a little bit confusing and, and frustrating. What about you, Izzy? What do you think? Um, let's see. Healer, tank, rogue, damage. Four. About four. Mm-hmm. Less than eight, more than three. I'd say four is the magic number. But then when you, I mean, sometimes you get really interesting interactions and people start you to do. pair off. I have little teams and they go on, you know, side adventures. And, and I think it depends on the story. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the story because there have been campaigns that I honestly played with three people and they were a lot of fun. And there was a campaign that we had like nine people, but the way it was run, it made sense to have so many people. And we were often split into two groups and uh, kudos to the GM for being able to keep track of what everyone was doing. Um, but like I said, it really depends, I think, on the group. But I, I do tend to, in gaming, have a more the merrier mentality. But with D&D, I do understand that sometimes, you know, more the merrier becomes very unmanageable and sometimes is very game-breaking. Right, yeah. and then Kim has to wait a really long time to have a turn to hit something. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how often do you role-play and for how long? Oh. 
We've been trying to have games at least once a week, but it, it sometimes turns out to be more like every week and a half to two weeks mm-hmm. with with people's schedules and stuff. Because we have we have a lot of people who play, but not everyone shows up to every game. So, and then the fairies come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the sort of. Uh, things about role playing is that uh, as you get older, I think the games become more immersive and you get much more character development and so forth. But the other problem that creeps in is that people get more and more things going on, like they have kids and jobs and and dogs and all that type of stuff. And then um, that um, sort of magic that you gain by being a little bit older and dealing with being able to deal with more interesting and complex you know, story or character development ideas is diminished a little bit by the how you can play less frequently you know, there, are, there are more things impinging on your time and so what you gain from being a bit more mature you lose by not getting that uh, nice you know, frequency the, you know, playing once a week at such and such a time that, that helps to create that cohesive story. So do you find as you got older Mandy that you've uh, that, that that's happened or? Um, well I hit it with my axe really kept us having a cohesive story for the first year or two and and when we stopped filming the show, the um, the gaming sessions got a little more erratic, and who who came to play got a little a little more varied. Um, so that made a difference. Um, but but I also think my experience is not normal because all my friends don't have regular nine to five jobs. <laughs> nobody, nobody on the West Coast that we play with has kids yet, although some of our friends on the East Coast do. So that's, I mean, that's that's not not really an issue yet. Right. Um, everyone's sort of freelance or self-employed, so that that helps a lot, I think. Right. Yeah, that's also a secondary issue with uh, getting older is. You know, what sort of emphasis do you place on your role-playing? Some people, if anything comes up, they'll just drop it like a hot rock, and then they'll go away and do something else. But that kind of makes it difficult for people who, that's maybe the one time in the week they actually get to go out or get to do something that's just about them rather than about you know paying the bills or, or feeding the kids and putting them to, to bed. So by the sound of things, you guys don't have quite the same sort of pressures, but do you feel that as people get older, they're more likely to blow off a D&D session? No, because all of the people we play with are, or at least my age or older, and they're they're always, you know, down to play whenever. Am I the baby of the group? Yeah, you're Aww. 24, right? Yeah. I'm my sister, and occasionally we get my brother in. He's really the baby. <laughs> I actually play less now than I did before, and that's mostly because the local groups, I I was playing three to four times a week, easily, or more. Um, And the problem with that, though, is that there were a lot of interpersonal issues, and those groups disbanded, and I was very sad. And then I didn't play for a long time until I met Mandy. So when you say interpersonal, I'm going to guess that there were couples at the table, and and some of them probably um, male and female, at least. Um, Um, Let me rephrase that. I was the only girl in these groups. Okay, so like people that were just—are we talking about um, like gay couples here, or more no. on the lines of like I think you suck? No, you are the one who is the one that sucks. Um, <laughs> I—it uh, was more who gets to ask out Izzy, and nobody bothered to ask Izzy. <laughs> oh, yeah. so you're the one? So, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, well, that's the problem when you're the only girl in a group. I guess you become a nexus for that sort of, you know, for the most part. Um, role players have earned their stereotype of being sort of um, 
relatively insular and um, not terribly suave around the ladies. And so <laughs> suddenly a, a, you know, a, a good-looking girl shows up at the gaming table. It must be hard to keep those lines from, from blurring. And um, Karen in episode two was saying, you know, like just because I'm flirting with your, your character in the game doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm actually flirting with you. And, and getting mixed messages, well, not necessarily mixed messages, or uh, the... Misunderstood um, messages. Well, yeah. exactly, yes. Uh, people misinterpreting what's actually going on, perhaps from a lack of experience or from some sort of wish fulfillment, you know, suspending their own disbelief momentarily that... Uh, that 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 you know that that can become a problem for girls in the roof, and it may be one of the reasons why um, girls in role playing are relatively uncommon. But in terms of the girls that are in role playing, at least in my experience, it seems that a lot of them are in almost homogenous girl groups, and perhaps it's because of that. I think it might, maybe that's part of it. Um, I know that the, the GM for one of my groups, actually my fourth edition group, uh, the GM was married and his wife was part of the group. But aside from that, uh, it was it was very rare to see a girl in the group. And the girls that I did play with on rare occasions were not into the role-playing at all. They didn't talk. They didn't communicate. They pretty much just wanted to sit there and roll dice, um, which I guess is fine for certain people. But... The thing is, I think that they, they're shy. I think they don't want to talk. I feel like they somehow are embarrassed or something. I, I something. actually heard, uh, uh, and when we were getting girls to come play for X, was that so many of them were like, I really wanted to play when I was in high school, but nobody would let me. Oh. Um, and I also heard that, like, the one time someone's brother let her play, he killed her character off immediately, um, you know, like, in a really unfair way. Um and then another person was like, I had a boyfriend who played, and we were going to start playing, and then it never really happened, but I really wanted to. And, you know, like, there was all kind like, I've heard a lot of stories like that where girls really want to play, but the boys don't let them. And then when the boys do let them, it might be boys who don't know how to behave appropriately. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've just found that fascinating, this idea of, like, not letting girls play. Like, and my- I haven't read into that. Go ahead. I, I haven't run, I mean, like, um, I guess I'm fortunate. I haven't run into one, anyone who's like, oh, you can't play because you're a girl. Or at least not with D&D. I did kind of run into that when I tried playing Magic. You know, people wouldn't take me seriously. But um, with D&D so much, I don't know if it's just the groups I was with. Um, probably because I was friends with them before I joined the group. So they kind of knew who I was to begin with. And they knew that I was someone who kind of took gaming seriously and wasn't just doing it for, like, you know, I guess the wrong reasons. I don't know. There is this mentality, I think, sometimes that sometimes gamer guys have that, like, women don't take the game don't view the games the same way they do and i feel like that's not fair i feel like your gender doesn't really affect how you view gaming that's just person person i i also get um this kind of story online where it's like well we need to tackle sexism in the gaming community and you can't do anything sexual in the game or in the products because that excludes women and i think that's absolutely the wrong it doesn't exclude women right which i think is the wrong attitude to have about sexism in gaming because it exists but if you pretend that there's no such thing as sex or gender you're actually being more exclusive than exactly and i haven't found the community to be particularly exclusive myself except for women who adhere to that idea and have that attitude and men who agree with them i can see that definitely mandy 
Yeah, that, um, that kind of goes into this, um, uh, the next question. We did question, run into yeah. some issues when I hit it with my axe launched and there were a lot of people, come on in, saying that it was fake and that we weren't actually playing. What, what were you really doing then? Yeah. <laughs> Pretending to play D&D? Like, isn't that kind of the same Which thing? Which is kind of ridiculous. Or that we were doing everything wrong. And, you know, it's like... Oh, my God. There was a lot of that at first. And we kind of we kind of battered those trolls down. But, wow. like, you do in D&D. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I find that people like to let their frustration tell the answer. You know, there's a, uh, you know, the idea of being a troll, I guess, can for some, for some people can be cathartic, not very pleasant for the people on the receiving end, but, but, you know, trolling around the place, not having to, you know, keep up this facade of, you know, nicely listening to what somebody's got to say and saying, hmm, that's interesting, rather than saying, I think that sounds terrible and you're a terrible person, you know, like that, the pressure of not saying that all day long, I think, manifests itself in people being particularly opinionated uh, online about stuff that really you know doesn't matter one way one way or the other, um, and talking about sexism kind of runs into the the next question which I had, and I'm particularly interested in both of your um, answers to this um, this question, uh, and that is first of all, how are Zach's girls as as uh, as characters? Zach's female characters? Yes. I mean, they don't differ a lot from his male um, non-player characters, really. They all talk in high-pitched voices. <laughs> Weird accents. And I mean, <laughs> Zach's game is very... KK to get, I think, more wine, but she would say um, that Zach's a nihilist, and so all his characters are nihilists. I wish she was here, because she, she had a lot of comments about Zach's player character, or non-player characters. <laughs> Well, that was one of the things that uh, I, I sort of touched on with Zach um, in his episode was that at the start of, I think might even have been the first episode, um, there was a confrontation or a conversation at least between um, a Medusa and uh, the player characters. And he said, you know, like, I'm, but I'm not, I'm not going to do the girl's voice there for this. And, uh, and you all gave him a hard time for that. And, and we got to talking a little bit more seriously about it, which was, you know, at what point... Do you say, okay, although I try to inhabit all of my characters, sometimes my skills in being a this particular character, like in, in the case I'm talking about being a girl, um, trying to put on the female voice and being inadvertently funny <laughs> somehow, you know, undermine I think, the seriousness okay. of the situation. He puts on voices all the time. He would just didn't want to do it right then for some reason. Like he, he does, does girl all voices all the time. <laughs> yeah, I usually have to mute my microphone because I usually play over Skype or Google Plus, and I usually have to mute my microphone so I can laugh really hard because <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's all not bad. Finding the the mood that he set up. I mean, we switch <laughs> after we're all done with the humor, you know? And the game wouldn't be the same without the humor. We don't tell no, and I, I love that part. Like, D&D should be funny, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that if you're not laughing really at do. the table, then then you're probably, <laughs> you're probably playing a war game. But um, the the sort of the side effect, I guess, of the of it being funny is that it sort of lets you know some of the tension out of the scene. But you guys uh, say that that's not really uh, not really too much of an issue, which is which is no, great. So I think the situations themselves create the tension, not the DM. Although I do love that we had a situation where we have this door that we had to smear blood on, and like five seconds later, Zach says something that we're cracking up. Like, yeah. so we just bloodied a door, but it's funny. Yeah, the, uh, even as he tells Zach that he's a nihilist, so all his 
as well as characters in Violet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I always think that Zach is um, out to kill us. Yeah, yeah, he's the GM. That's I don't, I don't, I don't trust him. <laughs> you shouldn't. You're like the only person who's never lost a character. I've never I've lost. I've gone through seven oh, the dogs. Dwarf, right, Zach, you killed my character. He kills my dogs. <laughs> I tried to kill my dogs. <laughs> Those are all but now, rolling shots. That is, is actually very even when representing female characters and male characters. They all tend to have a range of motivations and they're scheming, and it's all very, you know, it, it fits his setting, whether they're male or female or not. And I mean, obviously, no matter who you are, if you're GMing, you're going to have some part of your personality bleed into the story because that's just how it works. Yeah. Oh. Just like so, you're up. Uh, just if you're playing a character, you're going to have some part of your real personality bleed into that character. Exactly. And that's why saying, like, if, if, you know, if Mandy was GMing something, I would expect overall, you know, even the male characters to be a little more Mandy-ish just because she's <laughs> the one telling the story. So I don't think it, they would be, I don't think there's anything inherently sexist about a guy, you know, portraying a girl in the D&D world. I mean, he's just doing the best he can. Sure. And I was actually, uh, I was talking to Satine about this in episode 13, is that if you are playing a a female and you're a male yourself um does it require the gm to be sympathetic or empathetic even with with females to give you a you know to actually give you a little bit of an experience of what it might be like to be a a girl which is kind of the question that i'm asking about zach like do um and also about myself i wish i'd had a, a girl in my games uh that have been running for a long time i've i've had um girls and uh, I might be able to answer this question in reverse because I've played male characters. Um, and I have too. And I haven't noticed any difference with how the, the DM approaches that. Um, you're a person. You're playing a person of a certain gender. And you're going to have... You're going to role play a certain way because of the gender. But I haven't noticed anybody like tiptoeing around the issue. I mean, we're a pretty liberal group. We all like trannies and trans people and, and gay people and lesbians and, and everything in between. And and I it's, haven't really... It's not even a thought. It's not... Yeah, no one even... A whole lot of love. Like, if Zach had a problem with doing a girl voice, it was because he was shy the, for that, that the, second. That was like know? the first time we filmed the game. Like, he's, you know, like, we have... We're... Like, we have no inhibitions yeah. or anything. Like, we don't, we don't even think like that. If somebody had asked me, does Zach have a problem doing voices, I'd have been like, no. Because <laughs> no. as far as I've known these guys and been part of the group, I mean, that's been one of the big things is Zach's voices. They're hilarious. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, the, the, the main thrust, I guess, was more along the lines of um, when doing female voices, would you prefer um, just a, not an attempt at a female voice in order to maintain the gravity of what they're saying? Or absolutely. I th- no, I mean, absolutely not. I think that doing a female voice, if you're trying to do a female character, is, ap- is should fine. Try I'm not going to offend. I mean, if, you have, if you're playing with your friends and people you actually like and understand in real life, you're not going to offend anyone by trying to do a girl voice if you're not a girl, right. whether you're the GM or the player. Right. And your friends will understand that you're trying to do something interesting. Right. And that's, that's and what friend. you were saying earlier on about it doesn't really make a lot of difference if you're male and female, that kind of goes into the um, a little bit what we were talking about before we started recording here, the sort of like this idea of Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general should be sexless in, in both um, meanings of the word. I mean, uh, yeah, I think how how you approach the game is should be sexless and how you approach playing characters or DMing should be sexless, but I don't think that sex should be absent from the game altogether. 
the character I just created is half succubus. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, like, that's all I have to say to that. I mean, which is actually when, ironic if you think about it, because out of this entire group, <laughs> I'm only kind of not naked on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, when we when we were um, ordering minis and we asked KK, who's again gone out of the room to get out, oh, right? Lord. <laughs> she was like, all I want is for it to have a big butt. I want my mini to have a big butt. And then when we got the mini, she thought, she's like, it's butt isn't big enough. Oh. You know, like that's. <laughs> okay. Okay. And everyone's always grabbing for like the most scantily clad dressed minis and drawing boobs on their character sheets. Like the girls are, you know, mm. not guys. Like if you, if you heard us and you didn't know we were female or couldn't see us and didn't know what we did for a living and our voices didn't have gender inflections and tones, you would think we were just a group of, of like, like pre-adolescent boys actually you know what mandy it's funny that you say that because i um uh, my friend jason the other day said that when i'm around my female friends we're more dudes than dudes yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like we were driving down the street every day uh, the other day and kimberly saw a girl getting into her car and the wind blew her skirt up and she wasn't wearing panties and she was like oh my god naked ass i just <laughs> street you missed it <laughs> that's the kind of women we are we're not like oh. yeah i don't think that's even restricted to um, <laughs> like adult entertainers um oh. porn stars no it's what not because you? we play with my siblings and you know like they're they're the same way yeah. <laughs> i think that when you get a group of girls together then girls get to really be girls which is probably um, goes with more of what we were talking about before, which is that, you know, like, D&D is sexist, or in actual fact, you know, going broader than that, that people are just people. And for the most part, what men find interesting, women find interesting too. But yeah. because of social conventions, uh, a certain level of behavior, uh, fair or otherwise, is expected of women. And when you get a group of women together, then, you know, that... Then they feel safe, and, and the, some of the inhibition comes away. Right, sure. Not that... People like Kimberly and I are, are inhibited to begin with. <laughs> You're in the wrong job, <laughs> if you are. Yeah. So, um... I've actually noticed the men in our gaming group are much quieter. That's true, they are. Um, and are inhibited than the girls are. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know um, and, and worry more about, about what their characters are going to do and whether they're going to sound silly. Right, that's probably more to do with, um, that... Again, that's sort of the flip side of what uh, of what we were talking about. Where in in public, um, men are much more bawdy, um, but are much more reserved around women. And the reverse is true mm-hmm. with, with women. And I wonder whether that's sort of the the same sort of social pressure. That like the opposite of, of of you know birds and peacocks, where the men have the the brightly coloured mm. tails yeah. and they show off, and and the females are kind of yeah right. Listen to us, evolutionary biologists. Um, so, so should males play females? I have, uh, of course, they should if they want to. I don't think anyone should do anything. I think that they, do. yeah. I mean, they if they want to, they should. If they don't want to, they shouldn't. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Sure, and that, and that again, that sort of like harks back to what we were talking about previously with this, you know, like no, no like no, no sexism and and uh, gaming or trying to make it trying to make it sexless. If you're going to play a female, then and you're not going to play her as a girl, 
like you're going to play this sort of sexless idea, then why would you play... It's not a girl. Why would you play a girl? Well, exactly. I don't know about that, because I have a lot of, of sort of androgynous girlfriends um, who are into the idea of androgyny and and um, sort of genderqueer stuff, and they, if I could get them to play, they might play um, sort of more androgynous characters. But right. that's because of their own nature rather than... Yeah, but it's yeah. also an idea they're interested in. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I actually, I played a male character who was um, a draconian half-dragon, and um, I played him as a straight male, and so at one point he actually bought up Tavern Wench. It was kind of entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like video games are actually doing this a lot more, where they give you romance options or, or sexual options in the game, and you can have same-sex same, same sex relationships, uh-huh. and I actually think that's a really good idea. I love it. I do. <laughs> Making all of those things equally valid as, as story arcs is an important part of, um, I don't want to say assimilation, because that uh, implies that, that people are actually, you know, like intrinsically different. I think that, you know, your sexuality or your sexual orientation is, is largely irrelevant in the context of everyday, you know, um, interactions that you have with people, but such a big deal is made of it that just even just eroding that a little bit through video games or or through television or, or anything is is uh, is really important and and probably I think most people are are aware of this people that are very much you know in favour of you know like the happiest day of my my life will be the day that I don't have to to uh, go and support the gay pride parade like I don't if I if I don't have to go then that's great because yeah. it means there's no need for people to parade yeah. down the street and say you know this is we the- exist you can't you can't hide us away. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think in the gaming community in particular, you see a lot more um, stark contrasts on uh, views on gender and things like that. Because I mean, if you look at and it's probably the one thing that EA has done right, The Sims or like Dragon Age is one of those games like Mandy was talking about that gives you multiple sexual options. Mass Effect too. Yeah, Mass Effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's things like that because the other thing that they're noticing, and I think a lot of game developers are noticing, is that when you're dealing with gamers who are such, such a broad, diverse community, you can't deny us something because if you do, you hear about it. Yeah. They were actually talking about, I don't remember what game it was, but they were talking about removing um, gay um, gay relationship options options from the game, and people were furious. Yeah, I mean, they, they be. Did you hear? This happened a long time ago, but there was a woman playing World of Warcraft who was starting um, a lesbian, gay, and transgender um, and bisexual guild for people like that. And apparently, someone complained, and they they kicked her off. They they got rid oh, of wow. her account, and she sued them. Oh wow. Um, I don't. I think she sued them. Anyways, it was. It's in a book we have on gaming, but it was a big deal back in the day because they were trying to say that she was somehow discriminatory and that this was inappropriate behavior and all that stuff. And I'm pretty sure she won in the end. Um, well, that's the other thing. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100 percent positive. I had to go. I would have to go back and reread the article. But that that happened. And actually, World of Warcraft is the one place I noticed where people were the most volatile and like inappropriate when it came to sexism and, and gender issues. Um, but I but I, I think that might be getting better. I've that's, never played World of Warcraft. So you might sure have a, a different experience with that than me. But that's that's one of the things I, I sort of noticed back in the day. 
I play a lot of Steam games, and I have a Steam group, um, and I have a lot of people who invite me to like girl gaming groups and game, you know, games for girls, Steam for women, Zombie Slayers for women, blah blah blah. And I hate those groups. You know, people are like, "Why?" I hate them. I'm like, because I don't want to be part of a group that's gender exclusive. I don't want to be part of like an all female group. I just think that that's stupid. I want to be part. If I'm going to be part of a group or a community, I want it to be a community of good people. Yeah. I don't care what gender they are, and that's irrelevant. And the fact that people like you know care about it so much and they get so up in arms about it is the wrong idea i've heard of people like literally getting bullied because they were a boy playing playing a girl avatar or they were a girl playing a boy avatar and they were like oh it's confusing we actually thought you were a girl and they felt bad about themselves for some stupid reason you know like things like that um i heard a lot of stories like that um well, I mean, like, I, 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 when I joined World of Warcraft, my guild was mostly female avatars, but I was probably one of three women in the guild of 50-some people. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm just, like, I do assume automatically in a game when I meet somebody, I just treat that person like their avatar, because I have no other context. Not right, because I'm it, assuming that they're World actually a woman. is actually partially a role-playing game, too, and that's okay. Yeah. They even have role-playing servers. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I mean, when you're dealing with somebody, I mean, all you can go on is what you can see and if you're exactly. online you've even got more of you know you've even got more tunnel vision if you like because you can only see their avatar you know it's very difficult to relate emotion uh, when you're just typing um, yeah. it's easy, a little easier when you, when you talk and then easier again still I guess as much like the real thing if you've actually got some kind of uh, video conference going as well but going back to what, what you were saying you know if you've only got that one thing to go on then you know you don't you don't have any choice and we're hardwired to you know relate to what it is that that we see that's why we've got eyes so you know that's an interesting an interesting point do you find that it changes the way that you speak to people because you say you know you assume that that they're the the gender of their avatar but do you have Mm. a, a gender neutral way of referring to people until you know one way or the other no i don't i might i'm not sure it's been a while since I played. Uh, I I do I like if I see game. if I see a female avatar, I just say her and she. And you know what's interesting is um like League of Legends or Heroes of New Earth or anything like that. I I often know the people I'm playing with, and I'll still refer to them as the gender of the character they're playing, even if I know they're not that gender. Uh, like somebody will be playing a female character, will be like, oh, she's in the jungle or whatever, and they're like, you mean that he? And I'm like, no, that's... she, because I'm talking about the character. Right. The person is sitting in front of their computer. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the character. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I see that. And just going back to something you were saying earlier on, um, if a man is really in touch with his uh, his feminine side and he likes to put, uh, you know, face cream on and, and put gel in his hair, he's called metrosexual. Is there a female version of metrosexual? That I'm, tomboy. I'm yeah, tomboy. a tomboy. tomboy. Or like I say, my, my friends who, who would look at it more as androgynous. Okay, sure. Like gender neutral. Right. I mean, I'm... I guess, I don't know. Some people say I'm not a tomboy anymore, and I disagree with that. I think I still am. <laughs> I was hoping there's going to be some other really awesome word like metrosexual, but I'm a little disappointed. No, Girls, no I don't. A tomboy is the closest thing I can think of. Well, somebody needs to get on right it. Um, <laughs> so do you or should GMs fudge roles? I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this, uh, particularly from the autism oh. perspective. <laughs> well, 
honestly, yes, I think sometimes. Um, I, I don't fudge my roles just because I, um, I'm, first of all, I'm a terrible liar. Also, because I don't want to set up a precedent where people can't trust me. Because for someone who's autistic like me, trust is a huge deal. But I do expect someone in a position of like authority of the story to, to yeah, fudge things. I mean, if you've got something and um, it's detrimental to the story or it's like going to be really monumental to the story, especially depending on the type of campaign that you're playing, I really do feel like, you know, if that one little extra point would have made the difference between this or that, you know, do it. And I, and I can understand it from a storytelling perspective. Right, so that doesn't create a trust issue for you in the in the GM? Mm, no, because I think it's almost implicitly understood. Like, there actually was an incident in one of my older games where I rolled a two, and the DM of that particular game, or sorry, GM, DM, whatever, um, he had this chart, and he called it the crit-fail chart, and it was full of hilarious things that happened if you crit-failed. Now, I rolled a two, so I had already failed. Like, I wasn't going to make the hit. So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to tell him it's a one. Now, I'm a terrible liar, but he bought it. And so he, he's like, you rolled a one. And I was like, yep. And I picked up my dice because I have to roll it again. And I have to roll it for the crit field chart. So I roll my um, my percentile die to get a number from, you know, one to 100. And then he tells me on his chart, one to 100, what happens. And in this particular instance, I managed to kill two of my teammates. <laughs> <laughs> they were least Which, pleased about you fudging your roll, I imagine. They well, it, it all worked out, worked out in the end. Everyone was fine. We did win. We were winning the battle when this happened, so it was okay. But it was really funny because we were on this airship, and I had dove off the airship to land on a dragon. So it was, it was, it was amazing. Like I was just like, you know what? I'm trying because I'm trying to shoot this dragon in the head, which is a it's a called shot, so it's harder to do. And I was like, if I'm gonna fail this badly at a called shot, I'm just gonna do it epically. I am going to go for the all-out epic fail. Because I really feel like if you're going to do something wrong, you got to do it wrong in style. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that was one thing that, that's come up a couple of times um, in previous episodes. Um, and in my game, uh, when you roll a critical fail, which is which is two ones, um, you gain, first of all, you gain one plot point um, immediately. I mean, that's largely irrelevant. But um, if you want to gain another plot point, you get to just you you can gain another plot point if you describe what happens to your to your character so you can actually describe the critical that that occurs and the reason that I put that in there was um, that oftentimes when you fail in a game the GM will say the bad thing that happens and in some cases that description takes away from the coolness of your character or takes away somehow the the character you're the, the personality of the character you're trying to develop. So mm. the example that I give is like James Bond. Uh, James Bond goes to shoot somebody and the gun slips out of his hand and falls on the ground, which is extremely un-James Bond-like because James Bond is suave and sophisticated. And he's sort James of Bond held too many martinis that day. <laughs> I think it sure. wouldn't be an issue, though, if you have a good... Like, I think if you have a good GM, it's not an issue because, like I said, the GM that I was dealing with, like, it was a 4.0 game, but the GM we had was a really creative guy, a really smart guy. And I think he understood everyone's character. Like, he... While everyone else might not have been into the role-playing as much as I was, the GM did take an interest in my character and her backstory, and we talked about my character before I brought her in. So he knew kind of who and what she was. So whenever there was a crit fail, it was very, very tailored to that person's character, and I think he did a really good job of it. I think if you have a good GM, you don't really have to worry about that so much. Oh, no, for sure. Failing in character is important. If the GM can give that to you, then that's that's great. But the second um, reason that I put put it in was... um, being the author of your own demise can sometimes make 
the failure that much more acceptable to it. Like you, by being able to describe exactly the bad thing that happens, like you say, you know, you like the idea of your guy failing and uh, failing epically. Um, <laughs> then by sort of owning that, it it makes it more interesting to you rather than. You know, I think sometimes people can't do that though. And, sometimes, yeah. And having to just ad- adapt to to what the dice are telling you to do can actually make you very versatile um sort of creative player um and i don't think and i don't think in in my experience gaming it it has ever changed the story in in any noticeable way well and i think too um i like having the crit fail chart he basically and they were things that he came up with it on on his own but it gives a random element to like what exactly fails i mean like i said i killed two of my party members but the thing is you know if i was just a player and he was like well how do you want to fail and i was like i want to kill two people like my my fellow players are gonna be like what the hell is wrong with you (laughs) i think having that random element kind of relieves me from kind of a little bit of the responsibility for my fail just a little and i think it also by i mean there were certain roles where if you crit failed, like there was an instance I crit failed um, jumping over a cliff. Right. And um, he, I did have to roll the dice to see like what random thing went wrong. And they were kind of general. And he was like, you know, you can, he goes, this can go one of two ways. He goes, what do you kind of want? And then he's like, I'll tell the story. And I was like, that's fine. So it was a collaborative kind of thing. He sure. wasn't just like, here's what happens and you have no say. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm not opposed to crit fail tables at all or, or the GM describing the, <laughs> describing the, oh sure. There's some really fun, funny ones, particularly in, in the old role master version. There's some really amusing ones on there. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to the idea of crit fail tables at all or the GM describing what happens but in my experience the times when people get the most annoyed um, in a game is when something bad happens and the GM actually sort of takes over what's happening with the, the character um, and, it, and it's this loss of control of your character that's maybe not so freely given that tends to annoy people and irritate but, them. Like, but you, I mean, I feel like as a player, I understand that if if I fail a dice roll or if or if the DM rolls really well against my character in a fight, like something bad can happen. There's risk to the game, and and that's something you go into the game understanding from the get go is that you can die. Like the fear of death makes games really fun. Oh, for sure. Well. And I think especially with crit failing, I think if you've failed, you don't really get to choose anymore because, like, uh, let's say you trip and fall. Like, you don't really control where you fall or how you fall. Not You don't. It's kind of like the rest of the world is like, oh. We, we even roll, like, if we say, like, oh, I'm falling, but let's say I'm smart enough to try to twist my body this way as I'm falling. You get, like, a 50-50 yeah. on that, you know, and that and you roll for that. Mm. But for the most part, it's, yeah. And I do like that because I feel like if you screw something up epically in real life, like actually before this started, before we were all on Skype, I went to change my blinds and I completely knocked everything off the top of the shelf of my desk. And I was just sitting here like, oh God, what just happened? And I was like, okay. And I managed to avoid all of my pens dropping in my glass. Not through any like anything I did, but just random chance, and that's why I think I like in D anD D that I don't necessarily always have the choice of like how I fail necessarily. Sure. Okay. So, what do you think is the best and most inspiring role playing film or TV show for you? And this doesn't necessarily has to be about role playing, but you know something that you've watched and gone, "Wow, that's really cool! I want to play a role playing game like that right now," or "I want to Doctor write Who. a game like that right now." <laughs> Doctor Who. Um. <laughs> I, I would have to go with something like Blade Runner or Star Wars or um, Firefly. There's um, I just like the way this movie looks, but it's um, Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels. I would love to have like a futuristic 
game world that looked kind of like a lot of the stuff in that movie. Things like that. I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, it doesn't necessarily. It can be evocative for any particular. Yeah, any particular I, I, I tend to get excited about about how things look, about aesthetics. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that. Um, just experiencing something, you know, through the lens of, you know, some other director's lens or even the, the story that's playing out in front of you, getting you to see things in a different way, just some tiny little aspect of the story or the way that it's shot or something that you've seen may spark an idea for a story in a completely different different direction. I think as visual animals, you know, having that, that visual input and having, you know, that different perspective um, sort of thrust upon you because watching a film or television is largely a passive um, endeavor, right? You can react to what it is that you're seeing, but you can't interact with it in, in a lot of ways. So, being forced to see something through somebody else's lens, figuratively and literally, can spark some interesting ideas. And I see what you mean about Doctor Who, like all that. Uh, that uh, it, it, everything about Doctor Who is, was weird, and, and I, I still have a little bit of an aversion to the show at the moment because uh, when I was growing up in, in New Zealand, there were really only two channels, and if you didn't want to watch the news, and you had to watch Doctor Who. But I found that uh, the music at the start terrifying. And so I, <laughs> so I, I, no, I grew up like when I was younger. I mean, I'm obviously only 24, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't born when the show started, obviously. But I, I grew up watching the old black and white Doctor Who's, and like Tom Baker, I always say, is Tom Baker is my doctor. Um, and when they, you know, when they did the restart of the show with uh, Christopher Eccleston, David Tennant, and Matt Smith, now I was, I, you know, how some women get about like celebrities. I don't do that, but I do that about TV shows. So when they re-kicked it, up, when they when they kicked it off again, I was like. Ee! And, like running around and like super happy and like unbelievably excited and I couldn't wait and um, the thing I think I love about Doctor Who as like a role play concept is that anything goes because if you travel far enough in space you can make up anything. Sure, absolutely. And how do you feel about this uh, idea that it's going to be the next Doctor's going to be a, a lady? I'm. It's about freaking time because they've said for the longest time that when time lords regenerate, they can be alien or they can be another gender or whatever. And yet, so far, every time he's been a human male. Like, what's up with that? Come on, come on, give me something different. I would be more interested in seeing an alien female to even just yeah, give me a green alien or something. Because they almost. It's really hard to get good-looking aliens on TV shows. Um, I think Star Trek is an example of that. I mean, you can't really do much on a TV budget. Um, Hey, Mandy, have you seen um, Farscape? I don't know. I mean, I've I've sort of I'm so picky about science fiction. You should check out Farscape. I think you would probably like it. But I grew up, you know, watching Space Channel every day after school and and sort of flirting with various various shows. And I didn't really stick with anything um, on TV. I mean, I like a lot of science fiction movies and books, but on TV, Star Trek was really the one that that held me. I, I grew up watching it. I mean, I was like five and six when I when I develop my crush on Leonard Nimoy and Patrick Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) So going in the other direction from uh, people you've got a crush on and and love, um, who's your favorite villain and why? Maybe you've got a crush on them too. (laughs) Oh, God. Ramses from the Ten Commandments. Oh, my God. (laughs) I love him. (sighs) There are others who are more villainous, but I... Again, when I was seven, I thought he was so attractive and, and charismatic. So you like your villains to be charismatic? Like that's your reason for enjoying Ramses? Um, he was charismatic, but he was he was also he had. I feel like that character kind of had depth. What is she yelling? She re- yelled something about Rick Santorum from the other room. Oh God, that's her favorite villain. 
Santorum is my favorite villain. Kimberly's favorite villain, Rick Santorum? (laughs) (laughs) That's what she just confirmed. Oh, my God. Why is Rick Santorum her favorite villain? (laughs) Why? I don't know. Hey, er, Kimberly, why? She didn't answer. (laughs) I mean, I could think of, like, all the anime I've watched and and maybe come up with a villain from that, but they they tend to be a little one-dimensional. There are others. I just... I went from from (coughs) science fiction and what's aesthetically appealing to Ramsey's. What about you, Z? It sounds like you're sort of um, sighing deeply at the thought of some villain. Sorry. Um, a lot, okay, I have to preface this statement with saying that most of my characters that I play on D&D are chaotic neutral. Actually, every character I've played to date has been chaotic neutral. I am very chaotic neutral in my own personality, and my favorite villain is the Joker from the Batman series, and I associate Which very... Which Joker? Ma- it doesn't matter, but if I had to pick my favorite, um... Probably, oh, that's actually really hard to say. Because I, I feel I, like I feel like um, the one from the earlier films had oh no no had pros and cons, and then the ones from the the later films had pros and cons. Heath Ledger series is what I grew up on. But if I had to talk about the real life ones, then I would say Heath Ledger just because he's sexy. Um, but <laughs> no, I mean just the character as as a, as a character, the concept, the idea of the Joker is I'm, my favorite villain. I'm a Joker fan too. I have joker on t-shirts and <laughs> i have well i'm a i'm a harley quinn fan mostly because i want to be harley quinn yeah <laughs> i have like i drew up a, um, a a sketch of what i want to i have a costume idea for cosplaying and um halloweening as harley quinn i have a, a collectible harley quinn figure i have cups i have all kinds of crazy things i have all kinds of harley quinn paraphernalia because i love the joker love the joker oh <sighs> Love him. <laughs> so, Sorry. <laughs> it's not... Uh, so, a lot of the villains that have come up in previous episodes have been ones that have their own um, take on, you know, what is and isn't right. Um, as what is and isn't correct behavior or is and, isn't, is and isn't the right reaction to stuff. So they've got their own sort of internal moral code. Um, but the Joker doesn't really have that. Exactly. And I think that's why I love him so much. Um, I am very much a, a person who, like, you know, I believe in my own personal morals, but I don't believe that those morals should be followed by other people just because they're my morals. Yeah. I see everyday people pushing their own morals on people around them, and it's my biggest frustration it's with disgusting. society. It's disgusting. I'm it absolutely with Izzy on this, 100%. That's how I feel. Yeah, about, I, about the I, morality issue. I agree completely. Like, I, I just can't, I can't deal with people who are like, in your face, here's my moral stance, and if you don't agree with me, well, you're a bad person. The Joker is very much, I just want to watch the world burn because it's pretty when it's on fire. Yeah, and I, I <laughs> totally understand that concept. <laughs> it's actually one of the reasons um, I associate so much with the fantasy race of the drow sometimes, because the drow aren't like, here's my excuse for being the way I am. It is, I'm alive, and I can do this, and therefore I do. They aren't, they don't try and, ju- I, I don't like when people try and justify things for no reason or for, for arbitrary reasons. If you can't justify it just because, I mean, like, if you're trying to justify something, you're already in the wrong. Izzy, have, have you seen my tattoo on the back of my neck? My neck I don't the think I have. I got, it says, suffering is justified as soon as it becomes the raw material of beauty. Okay. Which I feel like kind of applies to the Joker. A little bit, yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's one of those beautiful... And that idea of, of like, like bad things can happen but you can turn them into 
into good things. Yes. Um, well, it's okay. Here's, here's another thing. Um, Native Americans for the longest time, um, would burn forests down. Mm-hmm. And there was an incident where uh, there was a section of land, I think it's near California, I don't remember, um, it was a long time since I read about this, but it was overgrown, and the Native Americans had been pushed out of the land. Well, the forest was overgrown, and it started to die. And they eventually, like, they talked to all kinds of people, they couldn't figure out what was wrong, they tried feeding nutrients to the ground, like, they did all kinds of things. Finally, they brought a Native American woman in, and they asked her, what's wrong? And she, she kneels down, and she sifts through the loam, and she looks at the trees, and she turns around, and she goes, it needs to burn. And they're like, What? Yeah. She's like, it needs to burn. Because every now, because you have to have, life spawns from chaos. It's the phoenix mentality. You yeah. have to, sometimes things have to burn to the ground before they can be rebuilt. And because and, things stagnate and they die and things, everything has to come to an end. And I think the Joker is really the embodiment of nothing is exempt from the rule of entropy. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, that quote on the back of my neck is a Jean-Paul Sartre quote, and he's an existentialist. And I'm really into that idea is that, you know, there's there that sort of nihilism and and that sort of thing that um it's interesting that, it's not a nihilist it's a related right but there's a certain thing where you you tear it down to rebuild it yes and, and that is if you go to um certain definitions of anarchy that is in there if you go to certain definitions of anarchy that's like an add-on like mm-hmm. this is a related concept um and and that's a li- that's in some kinds of um, existentialist literature as well. That yeah. you know. So what does the Joker want to see once he burns the world down? What does it next? He's he's he doesn't actually he doesn't even care about that. Like he has this understanding that when the world ends, he ends with it. He doesn't have this survival or perpetuating mentality. It is he is the catalyst of destruction, and he doesn't expect to outlive that destruction. Fair enough. So. <laughs> And I think you've already answered this one, Izzy, but feel free to amend your uh, your answer. Okay. Um, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? What would the game be and what would the character be? This doesn't mean you can play a character. Oh, suddenly God. You are that character in that game. This is hard because I am a kind, I, I'm, I'm a chameleon. I am very whimsical. I change my mind all the time. I'd be a changeling. That actually answers my own question. I would be a changeling because I can never make up my mind and I'm never set in stone. I am always changing, always evolving. And uh, when I make characters, I'll go from playing like a centaur to a ganasi to an alu fiend to an elf to like whatever. Like I am perpetually changing my mind. I don't have kind of like, you know, like some of my friends, you know, they play elves. And that's all they play. They just play an elf. Or some of my friends are like, they always play a ranger. No, I play rogues. I play barbarians. I play clerics. I play everything. I am just like... I am perpetually changing. I am never the same. And that's part of why I like that chaotic, neutral mentality, because I'm not really good or evil. I'm not a saint and I'm not a sinner. I am just, you know, I'm just another person, but I do have that chaotic, random element. I am eternally changing. Was it you who posted that, um, that thing on Facebook that was the, um, sci-fi characters and they were labeled as as true neutral and and true chaotic. And that was, that was pretty funny. I love those things because it's so true. And if it's funny too, because when I look at those tables of like D and D character sheets from like various like animes, TV shows, and and movies, I always, always, always wind up being the chaotic neutral character every freaking time. And I'm like, that's my character. And it is because that I have that mentality in real life, and I really do. So, what about you, man? If you could be a character in any role playing game, what would it be, and why? Oh man, picking just one. <laughs> Yeah, see what I mean? Like, it's hard. That's why I picked Changeling. Izzy had a really good answer, but, um, <laughs> um, 
come on now, you're a little miss multiple answers, no problem. And now, where all your answers gone? <laughs> you put her on the spot now. Well, okay, I I tend to stick to the cleric class because that that goes along with my personality very well. Um, I like I'm an autodidact, and I love to read, and I love to study, and I love to learn things, and I love to explore, and I'm really into culture and society and and all that and i like to help people which is why i worked with the special needs kids and which is why i'm really into um you know talking about my disability and things like that so i think class is definitely cleric like i'm a cleric that's just what i am um but but race is way harder yeah (laughs) uh tazani is a half demon and she is is again like Izzy. She's she's a, a chaotic neutral because she'll go this either way, and in real life, I go either way. And I think <laughs> you know that what? Suits, that suits the 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 tiefling. I mean, she's, like, tieflings are part demon, like somewhere back along the line. We made mine like full half demon. Like part of her character motivation is like I'm gonna go find out who which demon fucked my mom. <laughs> <laughs> So Maybe I would if they had play my like if I had to be anyone I'd be my own character. <laughs> if they had if they had a a, a pixie with a half bean template, that is how I picture Mandy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm completely serious. I picture a fairy that's half demon. Yeah, that that kind of fits. <laughs> oh, it's so, true though. Like that's totally perfect. So. One of the things that you mentioned previously, and it goes a little bit uh, along with this this question, is that role-playing games, for the uh, most part, um, seem to be quite appealing to um, to people with disabilities, well, one type of disability or another. And um, when I was sort of first starting uh, role-playing, uh, I, I had a friend of mine who was in a, in a wheelchair, had a degenerative um, muscle disease and he actually ended up dying when he was was only 15 but is it muscle um, dystrophy uh i don't think it was no i don't think so i I don't recall the name of it now but i think it was relatively rare um because he had uh he his his body was um didn't uh, um didn't develop properly either, so there were. I think there were a whole bunch of things going on. But the bottom okay. line for him really was that he was he was confined to a, a wheelchair. And um, when I introduced him to Dungeons and Dragons, because I hadn't really had a lot to do with him um, prior to that, um, he really got into it and really latched on to really latched onto it. And I think that unlike uh, able-bodied people. Um, or whatever the politically correct term for able-bodied is nowadays. Um, We're not really PC here anyway. Oh, that's this You don't take the just the act of walking around to be anything you know worth dwelling on or thinking about. But um, I mean, it's not even it's not even just walking around. It's being able to breathe. It's being able to concentrate because you're not in pain. It's it's there's it's all sorts of things that that again able-bodied people don't even realize. And it's and it's like planning out like energy usage like and this conversation could exhaust me so much that i may not be able to go and make a cup of tea later and you have to sort of divvy all that up if you have a disability or, or a serious illness and so like yeah you really do latch on to something in a game world where you don't have to to live in your own body you can get away from it you have a character that is capable of doing things you're not physically capable of 
and there have been instances where we've been gaming and Mandy and I, we both have the same illness and I've been, I've tried not to say like, I'm tired and I'm I'm starting to get out of it, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll look at Mandy. I need to stop playing. And I can see it on her and I'm like, okay, we're both tired. And I'll be like, Hey Mandy. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I'm tired. She's like, me too. And we're just like, Oh, we need to stop because we both get exhausted. And the thing that I think is really interesting though, is you keep talking about, you know, like people with disabilities latching onto, you know, fantasy worlds. But, um, even before I was, I knew I was sick and back when I was an athlete, even I, I read fantasy books. I started reading Lord of the Rings when I was eight years old and I was really attached to video games and fantasy novels and all kinds of stuff, even as a child. Yeah. I I mean, I was like that too. I, I was always, you know, like really into, really into Star Trek and science fiction, really into reading. I read so much, um, like Izzy, you know, books people would consider maybe too advanced for a kid that age. Um, and video games were, I spent so much time playing video games and I was a normal kid. I also played pretend with my cousins and friends and I rode my bike and I swam and I was, um, fairly athletic certain ways. Um, but I always had an interest in it. And then when I started to lose more physical abilities, I became even more interested in it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can remember coming, um, you know, uh, running track practice and in my head daydreaming about what I was going to play when I got home. Right. And I remember, I remember actually planning out um, my Ragnarok online stuff before I, well, you know, I'm like running on the track and I'm like, what character am I going to play tonight? Like, I would think about that stuff all day long. I still will like go out in my wheelchair to a bar with friends and like halfway through the evening, I'll be like, really want to get home and play Mass Effect. I really, really want to be in Mass Effect land. Like, I really want to... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think our disability has um, anything to do with us getting into gaming. I do think that when you're, I think if, if we didn't have things like, you know, computers and technology, I think we would have, you know, we would be more readers. It's more about accessibility. It's something that we can do and that brings us joy and it connects us with the rest of the world. But I also think it does give us opportunities to explore situations that we might not be able to physically. True. I do agree with that a lot, but I think, um, I think that even if I wasn't disabled, I would still be just as into gaming as I, as I have always been. Um, my little brother, um, interestingly enough, was deaf as a child. He, he had a lot of operations and he went to speech therapy and eventually he, he was okay. Um, but he started playing video games before he could speak. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that disconnect from other people really made the game world's more appealing to him because it was something he could get involved in more deeply than maybe his connection with other people. Um, in a, in a verbal he could interact way. with it. Right. It was more interactive because it was pictures and, and, and he pressed buttons and things happened. Whereas people talked to him and he didn't, he didn't get anything. Um, and he couldn't say anything back. And so it was interactive in a way that he didn't really necessarily, um, get at a young age. I mean, we, you know, we loved him and he was part of the family and, and we interacted, but it's, it's a certain kind it's not of quite the same. Right. Um, and I think that's an instance where, where his disability directly like connected with, with his gaming. And Although, he, he all, I mean, he still plays. We, we talk about gaming on the phone. He's, you know, we trade games. <laughs> like, I think, um, I think it is fair to say though, that my autism has something to do with it because I had a really hard time socializing up until, um, probably right before I turned 20 and after I turned 20 and, um, I didn't, 
I have a hard time reading vocal tone, facial expression, and body language. I have a very difficult time. There were instances where people would be aggressive with me and I didn't understand that they were being aggressive or sarcastic. And I had no idea. I didn't understand these concepts. I, I um, have a little, a little bit of an issue, like, like similar things like that. And I think my brother does as well. Autism and, um, and Asperger's tend to run in families. And I think yes. my siblings have a touch of it. Um, I think my sister might be the most sensitive, um, but she's really a reader. She plays D&D with us and she loves it, but uh, she's really a reader and she would love to watch us play video games. She played yeah. a little bit, but she really liked watching us play. Well, I think, but I think for me growing up though, that like video games were my social interaction. Like it yeah. was my way of connecting with the world because like people were scary yeah, and I, I got into friends. I had my brother and sister and they were like me. Yeah. And I, 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 my older brother was, um, an alternate. I was kind of like an oldie child for, for part of my childhood. And, um, I remember when I first started, my very first like big MMO online was like Ragnarok online. And it was my first time really like talking to people and like opening up to people. And since it was through the internet and it was on text, it was hard for me to be misinterpreted because I'm very articulate in, in the way I type and the way, um, I communicate online. So people, it was harder for me to be misunderstood. And whereas in person, at the time, my social skills were so underdeveloped that I had a hard time communicating and people didn't understand where I was and coming from or and, what I was saying. having the, this, like that particular kind of, of brain patterns and, and stuff like with autism and Asperger's is you are so afraid after a while of being misinterpreted because yes. it's extremely painful. And, and I'm like that. And I tend to over explain things. Yeah. I overcompensate myself and, and use, you know, vocabulary that other people might not choose to use because I'm so hung up on on exactly what this word means and exactly what exactly. I'm saying and being very specific. And English as a language is actually difficult for people with that kind of social issues because it is kind of sometimes an ambiguous language and there are often too many words to choose from or not enough. And lots it's, of slang. Yeah. And slang is actually something I had to learn on almost an intellectual level. Because yeah. I, didn't I, I was the same way. I have to make an effort to be like, I could use this word in this situation and it's okay. Yes. <laughs> I have to like, I have to, I have to repeat situations and that's actually the, a lot of the times I will use the same slang word over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And it's because I remember it and it's it because it's the it, only one I can think of. Slang really come naturally to people no. like us. Autistics tend to go over conversations in your head after you've had them. Like, did I yes. say that right? Did I, did they understand me? <laughs> it's true. And, and autistics um, have a very a big tendency to speak with an almost archaic twist to the yeah. way we, to the way we form um, the syntax or the, the linguistic structure of it's what we're saying. Normal. Yes. Well, I can't wait to hear your answer to this question then, which is, <laughs> do you have dice superstitions? <laughs> um, Yes and no. I mean, I generally like Zach to keep his paws off mine. Zach and I have a weird thing when we we do rolling initiative. Um, We tend to match. Right. (laughs) He'll roll a two and I'll roll a two. And then he'll roll a four and I'll roll a four. And then we'll both roll sixes. And then eventually someone rolls different. But yeah, I tend to to, want to roll group initiative because I, I tend to be able to beat Zach more often than anyone else. Um, and then the other thing is, is I generally, I don't mind sharing my dice with the girls or even the other guys who are playing, but I tend to not want the DM to handle my dice because it's a whole different mojo, (laughs) but I'm not really superstitious. That's just like, he'll lose them or put them in a place. Then I have to be like, where's that die? And you know, that kind of thing. What about you? Um, is is that something that, uh, that you have, like, do you have particular dice that you like to use and you've got to like, you line them up in a particular way and you... You know, you have to roll a particular dice for anything? Mm, 
No, and the thing is, uh, the only I actually have uh, don't have very many dice. The dice I do own were actually purchased for me by a friend when I first really got into D anD D, and they're precious to me because they're peridot colored, which is my favorite color and gemstone. But other than that, I mean, I don't have a whole hell of a lot of dice. So for me, it's not so much a superstition. Um, my do, my dice do seem to love me, but that's just probability. And I remember playing games where people were like, I would I rolled three nat twenties in a row. And everyone was like, what the, and I rolled over 15 that entire game and people started wondering, you know, is it, you know, like what's going on? So that other sucks when you wanted to roll low. Exactly. True. But in this particular game, rolling high was the key to everything okay. in this particular game. So it was fine. But I actually had another person who was playing in that group. who's like, can I use your dice? And I was like, yeah, sure. Go for it. And he rolls a one and then a two and then a one. And so I, I don't believe in superstition. I don't have a superstition. Kimberly, I don't Kimberly definitely has superstitions. I tend to think it's just like, I want to keep my stuff where I know where it is and it's there when I need it. And yeah, I have I just, tons I just of dice. dice. I have tons of dice. Um, and I tend to be like, okay, if we're going into a nice dungeon, I'll use this colored dice. And if we're going here, I'll use this colored dice. Or if we're playing Call of Cthulhu, I'll use the black dice, you know, just to go with the mood. But Kimberly has really serious dice superstition. She has two sets that are the same colors. And one set rolls good for her and one set doesn't. And she can tell within like 10 minutes of starting to play if she's grabbed the wrong set. <laughs> See, I just, I don't, I don't have dice superstition. But they're, my other fellow players in the games I play here locally um, in my town, they think my dice are, are um, cursed. <laughs> they do. They think if anyone but me uses my dice that they're, they're, they'll roll bad. And that's just like, I, I don't believe that. I think it's just chance and luck, but... Well, no, surely not. No, there's definitely got to be something. There's got to be some magic about the game somewhere, right? And I think the most people put, the, <laughs> most people put that uh, put that on the, on the dice. I was told by a Farrell in episode uh, eight that I was uh, a heartless, um, a cold, heartless, analytical person because I, I don't have any at all. But um, I think that there's a certain amount of uh, I think there's a, a certain amount of fun about having you know having dice dice superstition. That's probably that's probably part of it. So. Um, What's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example? Wait, I'm sorry, say that again? What is your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example? So somebody says, uh, Izzy, what are you doing tonight? And you say, I'm going role-playing. And they say, hmm, what's that? And you say... Oh, okay, I, um, I say basically it's kind of like being a character in a book. That's usually my fall-to example. Because that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. And do you do you pitch it to them? You know, like so. Let's just say, for example, you were uh, reading, you know, The Raven, or let's just say, for example, you were uh, Luke Skywalker, and or do you just describe it? Do you like do you try to recruit people, or do you? sort of stick to the circles you're oh oh no i try i do try and recruit people yeah i mean especially lately since my d all my other D groups either disbanded or i'm not part of them anymore for one reason or another and i do kind of actually like really enjoy the social aspect of going out and hanging out and part of the reason i go to lands is because i want to meet my fellow nerd i love them and so for me you know like if i meet someone who has even a remote like if i'm like oh i'm gonna play D tonight and they're like what's that and i'm like oh you know it's it's um it's a tabletop game you roll dice and have a character and you fight and you you pretend you act out scenes and they're like oh that sounds kind of cool i will immediately go into like would you like to play like i can totally teach you this game like it's awesome it's fun it's kind of like you know being in a book or being in a play it's, it's really immersive and interesting and you can kind of do whatever you want and i just like yeah i i'm total i'm a total recruiter if it was the army i would have the highest pay pay grade <laughs> so about you mandy how do you uh, how do you sell um, it I, if someone asks and they're genuinely curious, I'll be like, 
okay, think of Lord of the Rings, but you're playing Aragorn or yeah. Lys or whatever, and you get to make all the decisions about who to fight and when and where to go and that kind of thing. I, I everyone knows those movies, and it's very true to the fantasy setting. Um, like what happens in D and D is is like what's in Lord of the Rings. There are elves, there are dwarves. You've seen that, okay? You get to play a dwarf or an elf, and that's that's Nobody usually how dwarf. I would explain it to someone who is not into video games or fantasy or things like that what at all. About Planet of the Apes. <laughs> what about Planet what? Of the Apes? <laughs> There's <Hey>. Lucky. <laughs> how do you explain RPGs to people who don't know anything about them, KK? No, I just wanted to show her. But I had to recruit. Um, Kimberly and and some of my other friends who are like strippers and and adult film actresses and things like that. Like the wander last into the room and show you pictures of monkeys yeah. masturbating and wander out again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what Casey um, just? Who who are people who who have either never been allowed to play because they were in high school and the boys wouldn't let them, or it never ever came up in their social life as as an activity they might be able to participate in, and. And I don't sell it to everyone. I sell it to people who seem interested or who have the sort of personality type that would fit well with the group I play with. Because not everyone does. Um, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Sometimes when you're going to try and sell a game, you have to think carefully about the fact, oh, now, I can try and promote the hobby and sell this, but if I do that, I'm kind of required to invite them to a game. And do I actually want this... And there are people who will ask me, like, I really want to play a game in L.A., where should I go? And I say, go to Satine's comic book shop and play on D&D Night there, because that's that's not my little, you know, personal group of friends. And I like some of those games. Um, and, you know, a lot of those people are strangers to me, and it's still fun. But if I'm if I'm going to sell it to, like, anybody, I'll be like, go there and try it out. But if I if it's, like, you know, someone who might come and play in my game, then I'm a little more picky about who I try to sell it to. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, okay, so I, think, I think probably people <laughs> have got a pretty good idea um, where you guys are coming from now. So here's a chance for you to uh, show off your, uh, your credibility. Um, totaling 100. Ascribe points to system, GM, and players in terms of their relative importance. So you could cop out and go 33, 33, 34 if you wanted, or if you wanted mm-hmm. to stand behind some of the things you were saying uh, during the podcast, you could say something different altogether. I think it's it's probably somewhere like 60, 70% for, for players, as importance goes, and then the DM might cut into that 60, 70 to be like... It actually, I mean, the interaction between the DM and the players is a big part of that. I don't really separate the DM out that much unless it's a bad DM. And then I want them to have as little contribution as possible. But a good DM is right in that huge percentage, and they're partially responsible for the setting if you're playing with someone like Zach who made up his own game world. Um, And then system is, I think, maybe like... It's pretty important to me, but I would mush DM into the the percentage with the players and make it like seventy percent players and rest system. Okay, so thirty-five, thirty-five, thirty. Yeah, maybe. Alrighty, what do you think, Izzy? That's maybe dangerously close to the boring answer. There, I have to say. I think this is less important than the people playing, really. So maybe like twenty percent for system. I think that might actually be exactly what your fellow said. 
<laughs> I did. I actually, because I think we talked about this, and I said 20, 40, 40. Yeah, um, that, seems, that seems about right. Yeah, and I said 20 for the system, because I don't want to say, like, you know, I, I could go, you know, 45, 45, but then I'm like 10 for the system, and I'm like, eh. 20, 20 which, for system sounds right. I mean, honestly, like, for me, it's it's half the players and half the GM. Yeah. Because you can have no system. You can have, like, just completely, like, let's make, just make shit up as we go along. And or as long as the system that you don't even really like, but with the right people, it can yeah. be so much fun. Exactly. And as long as you've got the right players and the right GM, it all works together. And I think the GM and the players are equally important, because if you have bad players, the GM is just not going to be able to do anything with the game. And if you have a bad GM, the players are just going to be like, oh, why are we even here? Yeah. You have to have kind of a cohesive unit when it comes to, I feel like you can't really separate the players and the GM, like they, they kind of have to be equi- um, equivalent in some it, to some degree. Yeah. Um, because um, I just I really feel like it, it is that interplay because the GM is the one telling the story and the story is is half of the is well uh, most of the point. And um, the system I really feel is is not as important. I feel like a good system is appreciated, obviously, but I feel like you can take the crappiest system in the world and with the right players and GM make it an amazing game. Ladies and gentlemen, is he? And Mandy, and I'm not sure if Kim is still awake there, or perhaps she's got a nose buried in one <laughs> of those stuff. She's watching YouTube there. videos on her phone. <laughs> oh, God. As, as, you, as, as any good role player does when there's <laughs> role playing going on. <laughs> 